0: Knowledge is power. Now, I don't have to tell you that. You live that way most of your life. The more you know, the more you can control, the better you can guide your life to success. And most of us prove that out. Many of us are successful because we have mastered knowledge. We've acquired it from wherever we can go. And we don't just think about that in our career. Every aspect of our life is patterned this way. We take a trip, and we gather all the information that we can get. If you've ever gone to Disney World, there are whole libraries filled with books that you can learn about when to go and, and uh, which ride to see and which order. It's insane how much preparation and planning you can put into something. Whenever we make a major decision in our lives, most of us try to learn as much as we can. It's the responsible thing to do, right? But what about the information that you can't know? What about the stuff that's cut off from us? That there's no way to know? The future. Things that are out of our control. What will lead to prosperity? And what will lead to danger? And how can I avoid danger that's out of my control? These are the questions that we we often pose to the supernatural. The ones that we go to to look for an answer that's from beyond us. To seek something that, that we could never learn on our own with however much study that we can find. Perhaps some of you are here for this very reason. You want to know from God. You want to know what the future will be like. You want to know questions about meaning. Something that no amount of study can get you. Perhaps some of you are here with Saul's question. The very question that he asks in verse 15. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? But what if you honestly ask that question of God and he doesn't answer? What if he's silent? What could that mean? Does it mean that he doesn't exist? Does it mean that he doesn't love you? Does it mean that you haven't asked hard enough, that he wants you to really show passion about this answer, so you have to ask and ask and ask? What does it mean? And Saul in this passage, is seeking. And God's response is both terrifying and, I think if we have ears to hear, more hopeful and wonderful than we can possibly imagine. So let's turn again to this passage. Let's look at it. Let's hear God's word through it. But before we do, let's ask God's blessing on it. Let's pray. Father, we come to this uh, strange and mysterious word and we uh, often want answers. Uh, we want things uh, that, that will apply. Um, help us, Lord, to hear with ears of faith and to be guided by you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you followed along the passage of First Samuel, uh, many people in reading the book are drawn to the character of Saul. He is one of the more sympathetic characters in all of the Bible because we can relate to him. His motives aren't perfect. We certainly see he makes mistake after mistake. But we think we can understand what's driving him. So much so that oftentimes we overlook some of the, the weak spirituality that he, he displays in his life because of the assumptions that, that we can bring of how much we're like him. That's why when things turn really tragic in Saul's life, it can start to trouble us. We tend to uh, give Saul a pass on some of these things because he's so much like us. And we start to raise questions of God. What is he doing? Why is he not taking care of Saul? Doesn't he see the heart that, that we see in him? Well, chapter 28 Begins with Saul's situation. Saul is clinging to his reign as king of Israel. And he's got threats all around him. We've seen the threats that David poses. And now we see uh, the constant enemy of Israel, the Philistines, on the eve of war. And Saul is terrified. He's frightened. Verse 5 says he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled within him. And now, verse 6, he does what seems to be the righteous thing. It says, he inquires of the Lord. He takes his fear and he goes to the Lord asking questions. But then, like a punch in the gut, the Lord does not respond. He refuses to answer. It says that he did not answer by dream, or by Urim, or by prophet. Those were the three normal channels that at this time in Israel's history, God used to to communicate to his people. And they correspond to the three offices that God has established in Israel's history at the time. The prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet we've seen throughout the story has been Samuel. Samuel has been the one who has spoken directly from God. But now he's dead. And the other prophets who've been in Israel have fled to be with David, not Saul. The Urim. The Urim were sort of like uh, like dice that the priests had that could discern the Lord's will. They They were a guidance to make decisions. Well, Saul sort of took care of the priests in chapter 22 when he kills 85 of them at Nob. The priests were no longer present and ministering to Saul. And dreams. Dreams on occasion were specifically given to kings, the way that God would would, uh, speak to them directly. But here we see, like the other methods, God cut them off from Saul. Now, despite Saul's sin, we still have to ask that question. Where's God? Is he cruel in remaining silent? I mean, Saul seems to be trying to make good. He's seemingly trying to do the spiritual thing. He sincerely wants to know what God wants him to do. Why would God not answer him? It's this silence that drives Saul to the next step. And if you've been reading in a sympathetic way, the step seems reasonable. He's in a panic. He's like a a patient who's been given a a terminal diagnosis, who's tried all the other avenues of, of traditional treatment. Gone to the clinics, gone to the specialists, and gotten no answer. And so you try anything. You try all the alternatives. Saul tries an alternative, however strange and suspicious, because he's looking for what he needs. He turns to a medium. Someone who claims to be able to connect to the spiritual realm. One who can conjure up dead people and speak to them. This is weird. What is this doing in the Bible? Saul is going to a sorcerer or a witch who can raise the dead? Is this real? And we could pause here and spend lots of time talking about this strange phenomenon. This story is fascinating to the spiritually curious. It is possible to spend time in here and miss the point. We can ask lots of questions. Is it possible to speak to the dead? Is this really Samuel? Does witchcraft work? Do do tarot cards work? Or palm readings should I check my horoscope tomorrow because this stuff actually has some basis in reality? I mean, some of you, like me, have probably heard some impressive stories of, of a, a, a spiritualist who can give amazing insight, or, or some, uh, some uh, fortune teller who can be astoundingly accurate. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to know the answer? Is this stuff real? Well, if you do, this chapter is going to disappoint you. Because the narrator shows completely no interest in explaining this. He doesn't explain if this is a ghost, if this vision is crafted by God to somehow look like Samuel, if this is really him raised from the dead. It's strange. She seems to be able to see him. Saul seems to be able not to see him. The woman recognizes Samuel, and she screams. Some think that she screams because she's always been a phony, and then she's shocked that this actually works. But I think she screams because what she sees is a man, as it's described here, wearing a robe. Not any old robe. We've seen throughout 1 Samuel, that robe is a sign of office. That's how she knows that this is Samuel. He's coming with God's authority, and she knows that what she is doing is wicked. And so she knows that she stands condemned in what she's doing here. Samuel speaks. But is this really Samuel? If you look at what he says, he says nothing really different than when he was alive. He says that the kingdom will be torn from Saul. That he will meet his end. That he and his family will be wiped out. Is it a demon? Or is it simply an echo of Samuel? The narrator doesn't think that this is important. Saul knows that the practice is wrong. Verse 3, he even... uh, Decrees that these should be banished from the land. We, if we've been following along with the Bible, should know that this is wrong. Deuteronomy 18 forbids it. Well, the Bible doesn't forbid things because they don't work, but because they're wicked. The lack of explanation, though, is part of the point. Who cares if this is a ghost? Who cares if you can access secrets from beyond? If we spend our time thinking about the means, we're going to keep our eyes off of what Saul is doing. And that's the real point of this passage. For The issue is not so much where Saul goes to get this information, but why he feels the need to do this. Why does he find the need to turn away from God? to get this information. This has been a recurring pattern in Saul's life. He finds himself in a situation where the one path would be trusting God even though everything around him looks tenuous and and, uh, dangerous. Or he could second-guess God and disobey It was there in chapter 13 when he was impatient for Samuel to come and he gives an an illegal sacrifice. It's also there in chapter 15 when he fails to obey the Lord and he does not kill Amalek. Why does Saul need to turn away from God's law? Why does he need to seek this medium? His actions reveal some assumptions that he comes into it with. He comes into this passage with some faulty assumptions. The first thing, he assumes that God's silence means that God has abandoned him. He assumes that the silence means that God has rejected him. Now, it's hard to argue that God hasn't abandoned him. For God has told him once again that he's been rejected as king. And now he is silent when, when Saul earnestly speaks and, and questions. How can there be any hope? You may feel this sometimes. Sometimes you may look around at all the evidence and it seems like it's going the other way. That God has turned away from you you may feel as though God's silence means that he's left the building. Why won't he answer? Why won't he give you what you need? Those suffering have these feelings. When you're in the midst of pain and uncertainty and you can't figure out what God is up to, you feel as though he's gone, that you have been left alone. It's in these times, it's when these feelings come up, when we can't feel his presence, that we have to draw back to our theology. We have to understand what God's word tells us, his whole word, a guide to our experience when our experience will mislead us. God never gives up on his people. God never abandons them. You will not do anything that exasperates God. There's not a time when you can sin so many times that he says, all right, that's it. I'm out of here. I was okay for the first thousand times you sinned, but that one was enough. I'm gone. No. We think too highly of ourselves when we think that way. Because his grace has never been based on our obedience. If you're a Christian... Christ has done it all for you and has guaranteed that God's presence is always with you. So our experience of his absence is not to be trusted. It should raise more questions about our experience than about God himself. What should we do when we can't feel him? What should we do when our experience tells us that he's not answering? Well, James says it. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. The best thing to do when you feel abandoned by God is to draw closer to Him. Pray. Connect with the body of Christ. Come into His Word. Move towards Him. And in moving towards Him, it may not give you the answer you want, but it may help reframe the questions that you bring. You may start taming your wild heart to understand that the experience you look for is not the experience God wants to give you. Maybe you're looking for the wrong thing. Draw near to Him when you can't feel Him. Saul does the exact opposite. He flees. He flees from God to whatever he thinks will work. Whatever he thinks will give him what he needs. Saul has never understood the graciousness of God. You may say, well, at the end of this passage, God gives him the sentence of death. He says he's going to be killed in this battle. And he will be. But Saul has never understood the graciousness of God. Even when that final sentence is read, there is still hope. You see, words of judgment in the Bible are always a call to turn back to God. Every time a word of judgment is given, it's always a call to repent. There's always an offer of hope. But think of, of Jonah. Jonah is given the task to proclaim judgment to Nineveh. And it's unqualified judgment If you read in the uh, book of Jonah, he's not there saying, watch out and turn because destruction is coming. He says destruction is on its way. But the people of Nineveh say, well, let's turn. Let's see if God relents. Let's repent. And they do. And they find mercy. He doesn't destroy them. Jeremiah gives the same point. Jeremiah, often called the weeping prophet, talking again and again about the destruction is coming. Listen to how Jeremiah puts it in chapter 18 of his book. It says, if if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that which I intend to do to it. You see, Saul comes into this with a wrong assumption that God has abandoned him. And then he feels he needs to go elsewhere for his hope. That's the first assumption. But the second faulty assumption that Saul makes here is that he needs something. That he needs something that God is withholding from him. He believes that God has not given him necessary information. So like the desperate patient, he turns to alternatives. But we need to ask, what is he really looking for? What is Saul seeking? When he goes to Samuel in verse 15 and he says, tell me what to do, what is he really asking for? Well, on the surface you might say, well, he's just looking for God's will. He's looking for God to tell him, what his will is, what his plan is. I mean, that all sounds really pious and great. That's something we do. We want to be faithful in our life, so we ask God, God, show us the direction. Show us the way to go. But Have you ever stopped to think why we ask that question? Why do we need to know? Why do we need to know what God's will is? Why does Saul need this information so badly that he will actually seek a medium to find it out? Look at the context. He's scared to death. He wants Samuel to tell him the right thing to do. Tell me what I can do to avoid danger. Tell me what I can do to ensure that things will work out for me that will ensure success, that will avoid all the things that frighten me. He's looking for knowledge that he doesn't have access to. Knowledge is power, right? Vital for all that we need to plan and to think about the future. I see, many of us can relate to this. What are you looking for when you seek God's will? What are you looking for when you're scared and uncertain when the anxieties well up and you cry out, God, show me the path. Tell me what to do. When I was a kid, I used to uh, love uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Have you ever read those? I don't even know if they're still around. They were like the only book I read when I was a kid. You'd, you'd read this story and then you'd come to a stopping point and you had a fork in the road. You, ha- you could either turn to page 92... Uh, and then the path would go in a different direction, or you could make a different decision and pa- turn to page twenty-seven, and then your fate would uh, be different. And it could uh, be drastically different. One could wind up with the main character succeeds and excels, and the other one just like stops right at the page you turn to. Uh oh, eaten by a dinosaur. <laughs> uh oh, you just fell off a cliff. And uh, I used to love to cheat when I read these books. Okay, I'm not gonna quite turn there, but let me see how long this section is. Okay. All right, let me go back to the other thing and and figure out. What where's the best where's the way I'm gonna get the best story for the main character that I associate with? We seek God's will to know the right thing to do, or the decision that will bring the most happiness or the most success. We say, God, please tell me which page to turn at, so I know that things will be good. I think this is the very question that drives Saul. But I also think it's the very question that drives many people away from the church. It's the very question that drives many people away from the Bible. Because it can seem so impractical. It can seem so irrelevant to the thing that lies right in front of me. Why can't God just tell me plainly what to do? We look at the Bible and it seems so distant. Just from this foreign culture in an ancient time. How in the world is that supposed to tell me how to live my life? I might as well ask how the Battle of Hastings can tell me which job to take. It just seems completely irrelevant to us. So you read parts of it and you think, there is no way that this will be guidance for my life. And so, what do we do? We turn inward. We look at our gut. We say, well, maybe God gave me this instinct. And maybe that's a a sure sign that He's leading me. But maybe it's just your selfish desires. Maybe it's the burrito you ate the night before. How can you know? So, you can't trust turning inward. Maybe you turn outward. Maybe you look for signs and clues that are around you and you start piecing them together. Maybe God is just showing you the path to go. Or maybe I just want to see what I want to see. I want to tie things together that uh, fulfill exactly what I, where I want to go. Saul believes that he has to have this information. So, he goes to a witch. This narrative is amazing to show what this does to him. If you've been paying attention, the the narrator artfully crafts this to show the irony of what it's like to turn, to get what you think you need. Saul goes to this this, uh, medium because he's trying to avoid losing his throne. But he has to go at night. And he has to go in disguise. What does it mean for him to go in disguise? It means he has to take off his royal robe. To see this medium, he has to contradict his own command. He has to make his own decrees seem null and void. Do You see what the, the, the narrator is showing here. Saul is trying to, to save his throne, but all the way, he's abandoning it. Abdicating it to get this answer. Bringing on his own Destruction. We can feel like Saul. God is not speaking to me. I need more. I think the Bible at its best is a story about Jesus, but how is that story about Jesus really going to help me? But is that our real need? Is knowledge, is information about God's plan really what we need? The truth is, we don't need it. We don't need more information. The thing we need is not more information from God, but more communion with God. Our deepest need is not to know which path will lead to which outcome, but who is this God that created me? Who is this God that's given me life? Saul didn't need to seek Samuel from beyond the grave. He needed to seek Yahweh, the covenant Lord. Seek him. Not the knowledge that he was going to give you about the future or the plans. Not those questions you were asking him. Seek him. As one writer quipped, when thinking about the proliferation of all these uh, how-to-find-God's-will books out there, he says, until recently, Christian writings on guidance have emphasized guidance to God, not guidance from God. The purpose of God's word is to point to reconciliation and communion with God. That doesn't make God's word irrelevant, but it begins to transform our life to understanding what life is all about. Guys, we need to hear this when we're anxious. We need to hear this when we are fearful about what was coming before us, about which path to take, of the uncertainty. Our need is not for God to show us signs. That's always been. Throughout Scripture, that's been a sign of unbelief, never of strong faith. So often we ask to know God's will, But really, what we want to know is, God, you show me the thing to do so that I don't have to have responsibility. If you tell me what it is and I do it and it turns out bad, that's on you. Forced with an uncertain future. You don't need to know what lies ahead. You don't need to have control over it. But you do need to know the one who is in control You need to know Him. You need to know what He's done for you. You need to know the promises that He has told and guaranteed for your life. Faced with the decision between two options, you don't need a sign of which path will avoid danger and then which path will lead to success. What you need is God to bless whichever path you go to. Think about that prayer. Think about the difference between the prayer that says, God, light the path up for me so that I know the safe way to go or the one that doesn't have any responsibility, and the other prayer that says, God, I've thought about this deeply. I've tried the best I can to make a wise biblical decision. God, please bless the decision I'm making. The Gospel tells us that God has loved us and redeemed us despite a lifetime of really horrible decisions. I'm living proof of it. I've made so many bad decisions in my life. And God has wonderfully, graciously continued to bless. He gives us His blessing not because we followed the directions better than everybody else. He gives us His blessing despite the fact that time after time, we go off the rails. That's good news. That's hopeful news. It's true not just of information that we feel like we need to acquire. It's true of anything that we feel like we need to have that God is denying us. What are we really saying? We're really saying that I have to have a blessed life. I have to have this thing to have a blessed life. I need it and God's not providing it for me. For all who look at other things, all who look at their accomplishments, all who look at the things that the world can provide, and don't look to Christ, it will never satisfy. It will never give you enough that you feel content and happy. But for all who look not to themselves, but to Christ, God promises blessing, He promises it fully. And there's not a path or a decision that will ultimately remove us from that blessing. Your future is not one you fear. But if you're in Christ, it's one filled with hope, knowing that the path you take will lead you directly to Christ. There are ways in which we sin. There are selfish things we can do. And they will bring fatherly discipline to correct but always in a way that brings blessing and ultimately always in a way that leads us toward God. Saul is king of Israel. He has all the promises laid out in front of him. He knows God's graciousness and he still feels that he does not have enough. He still feels that he needs to contradict God's word, contradict even his own word and his own identity by seeking after these things. God's word isn't going to give you information that you think you need. It's not going to tell you the right place to invest your money. It's not going to tell you which guy to marry or if this job is actually going to provide you happiness and success. The search for the right path, if you ask those questions, that path is only going to confuse you. And at the end of the day, you will not lead to a fulfilled life because money, spouse, career success, that is not where life is found. But those things will be fulfilled if they are part of a whole life that's obedient to God. And if all those things come under God's lordship, then we can say, yes, God has given you Enough. He's given us everything we need.